Good morning and greetings in Christ's name this morning. It's a blessing to be together again. Blessing to see each one of you. Just want to welcome each one for um, for this part of the service and just uh, a special blessing to our visitors and just trust that you can feel at home here this morning and that uh, you can worship with us. There was something our teacher mentioned in, in our Sunday school class. Just, uh, I should have written it down, I didn't. But um, something about what we're here for. We're not here for accumulating um, things. I can't say it exactly how he did, but the thought that we are here for the kingdom of God. We are here to live for him, to glorify him, and to work for him. And this morning, my message, um, the title I've given it is Simple Living. And I don't know what goes through your mind as you think of simple living. Uh, I would say, as I, as I know our group here, our congregation, I believe that we place a value on simple living. Um, it's probably something that we have been taught, we've grown up with, at least um, to a degree. As I think of simple living, the question comes to mind, just what is simple living? You probably have a picture of what simple living is. And I didn't bring the book with me, but probably a lot of you are familiar with that little book, um, Life in a Global Village. And there's a, a picture, it stands out to me that there's a picture in there of a, a beautiful house in there. And you turn the page and there's a house, maybe a little bit more like the houses we would live in. And um, if you don't continue paging through the book, you get the feeling that we would fit into that simple living category. But then you turn the page and there's some kind of a shack there that some people live in, in our world. And then your mind gets turning. Wait a minute. What is simple living? Another picture that kind of stands out to me Actually, before I talk about that picture, um, I just think of the, it, it talks about the vehicle that you drive to work in each day, or, or whatever uh, you drive your vehicle for. And maybe you get the feeling that this vehicle is getting a little old, it could be replaced, um, I, I need something a little better. And then there's a picture of a man on his way to work well, actually, he's at work. He's pulling a cart, and he has his goods stacked on that cart. That's his transportation for his goods. What about simple living? Maybe it makes you feel a little differently about the rusty old vehicle that you drive. So 
yes, I, I believe we have a value on simple living. Uh, that's something that Anabaptists have been known for. Uh, we think of, of uh, in our history, uh, farming, uh, hardworking, and just simply not extravagant living. And I, I think, you know, I haven't been around for just a tremendous amount of years, but I think that probably Anabaptists have been moving some from that picture that we get of simple living, of what we had uh, been known for, and yet, you know, I think we still do have a degree of simple living. But maybe it's different from what was once known to our people. And uh, some time ago, it was back in July, um, as I was working on, or getting ready to work on this message for another engagement I had, um, Randy Horst from Hagerstown, Maryland, asked, or asked the question or suggested that maybe we have lost a degree of simplicity somewhat through no fault of our own. And he brought out the fact that, as I mentioned, about as having somewhat of a, a farming history and just that being at home and um, working hard you know, today it's difficult to start out farming. That's something that I don't think, I haven't really talked with you as men about here, at least not much, but I don't know how that appeals to you to think of, of living on a farm, being a farmer. But for me, when I think of that, for one, I don't really know farming, so that would be a challenge, but then I think of what it would take to get started in farming. It, it takes a, a, just a, a tremendous amount of money to get started in farming. It would entail a lot of debt. It would, um, well, there can be ways to invest your money to, to probably have some faster and greater returns than what farming would have. So, hence, we need to go out and work. And we work full days, full days to make ends meet. Prices of land are rising, so we need to work those full days and um, be able to pay for a property that we would buy or that we have bought. And then also as we manage our money well, we do have often some extra left over that we can Maybe splurge on ourselves some. And so, I don't know, we go around with this whole simplicity thing, and I'm not sure um, what your thoughts are with all this. But I do believe that if we want to, we can still live a life of simplicity. We don't have to be taken by culture around us and living that life of just what feels good, what we want. And this morning, I'm not here to lay out an outline of what it looks like to live simply, but rather just urging that we would consider how we're living life and how is it affecting my usefulness in God's kingdom.
Simplicity, I believe this is a dictionary definition, the state of being simple, uncomplicated, or uncompounded. A number of years ago, um, my wife's parents were selling the farm that they had been on for, for years. And I don't remember the details about this, but I know there was a legal issue that they were trying to work through. I'm not sure if it related to the deed or what it was. But it was something they had to work through. And my wife's uncle just made a comment to me, something about the more that we have, the more cares that it brings. It, 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 <laughs> I guess it takes away from that simplicity and just, um, there's more to work through. I alluded to the fact that simplicity runs against the grain of our culture. And, and again, it affects us. We want ease. We want security, financial security. We want pleasure. We want what feels good. We want to be self-pleasing. Um, I think um, I've heard the, the comment uh, in the past, something about it's okay to do it if you don't do it too often. It's okay to do it once in a while. Something that would have um, gone along with, with uh, maybe using extra money, using extras, blowing money, or spending extra money. And that, that just made me stop and think a little bit. It's okay if we just do it once in a while. And uh, I'm not going to fault that necessarily, but I'm going to say think about it a little bit. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 18 here, uh, just a number of verses as I think about simplicity running throughout the New Testament, not just simply in our possessions, but just as a way of life, as we conduct our lives, as we relate to things. In Matthew 18, uh, the, first, the first six verses, um, talking about um, the disciples, looking at who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We'll go ahead and read these verses. Matthew 18, 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So just pausing there for a little bit. The disciples were trying to decide who was the greatest. And I don't know. Um, I 
Actually, they came asking Jesus that question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus sets a little child there. And he just points out that you need to become as a little child if you're going to even enter into the kingdom of heaven. An uncomplicated child. That's the nature of a child. Trust. You know, trust is simple, isn't it? Sometimes it's a little difficult for us to grab a hold of, for me anyways. But trust. Forgiveness. Just simple pleasures that a child enjoys. Jesus calls us to just live that life of simplicity. Trusting him. Forgiving one another. Not out looking for the latest and greatest, but just, just living life as he's called us to. Verses 7 through 9 talk about offenses. And it talks about, um, about dealing with offenses. Verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. I think of uh, back in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking about um, your hand, your eye offending you. Deal with it. Cut it off. Take care of it. Sometimes maybe we try to figure out what all is surrounding things and the whys of everything. But if we have something that is causing problems in our lives, there's a simple call here. Deal with it. And I realize sometimes it is difficult to deal with those things. But maybe sometimes we give a little too much room and we nurse things a little too much. And um, don't just deal with it. Take care of it. Cut it off. Remove those temptations, if at all possible. Verses 15 through 20, skipping down here, talk about the simplicity of dealing with trespasses. These are some of the verses that we probably know Matthew 18 about the best for. But he says, Moreover, if thy brother, brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two 
of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. If your brother trespass against you, go and take care of it between you and him alone. How often do we complicate that and we go talk to someone else about it? Try to get their opinion on it. Maybe even influencing them, I don't know. And I, I think maybe there is a place to go seek counsel in that, but not for the wrong motives. Maybe to help you know if you are understanding and seeing that offense or trespass correctly, but not as a gossip. Your call is to go yourself first to the brother, and then he lays it out. If that doesn't work, take someone else with you, and, and so on there. As we consider thinking of simplicity, I think of Jesus and how he healed so many people. And you know, he didn't do fancy things to heal them. There was, I think it was a blind man. He took clay and put it on his eyes. That's actually kind of dirty, clay is. But it's simple. He used words to heal people. To one, the woman caught in adultery, he said, I believe it's to her, he said, go and sin no more. He didn't make a big ado about it. I think of the simplicity of the message of salvation. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God hath raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. Simplicity. It's not a big ritual that you need to go through for salvation. Jesus also talked of people who reveled in ease and luxury. And I'm not going to turn to these we know the stories well. Um, in Luke 12, the ground of a certain rich man gave forth plentifully. And, you know, Jesus, he didn't condemn that. But that man said, I'm going to tear down my barns, I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm just going to take it easy from here on out. Jesus said to that man, your soul will be required of you this night. My mind also goes to the rich man and Lazarus. How he fared sumptuously every day. He lived well. He lived as a king. And he really didn't care much about this man that would have just enjoyed having the crumbs from his table. 
And even so, we know the end of that man. How he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, Abraham's bosom, and, and he felt his own torment and torture in hell. The call throughout the Bible is indeed that we live lives of simplicity. But I would ask this morning, is simplicity godliness? I think we know the answer to that. You know, I think of people, I think there's different reasons for living the simple life. Uh, some people live a simple life because of necessity. You going back to the book, Life in a Global Village, there's people who live in those circumstances because they have no other option, no other choice. There are some people who live simple lives because they want to. They, they just prefer that. Um, they would have the ability to live a life of more ease, but they choose not to. But then there are also those who live a life of simplicity as a choice to glorify God. And, you know, that is how God calls us to live. The Word of God, we, we saw there, um, is our call to, to live the simple life, to glorify God. And I want to read um, a few verses from Matthew chapter 6. Again, a familiar passage as we think of, of how God would have us to live here. Matthew six nineteen. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Just pausing there a moment. Uh, just a, a simple call here. Don't lay up treasures on earth. They're not lasting. Uh, I think we all know, we recognize that the houses, the toys, the nice things, the extras, all these things, they're earthly and they're going to burn up someday. They'll deteriorate. They won't last. But then he says, do lay up treasure in heaven. The lasting heavenly treasures, the souls of men, you know, those aren't going to burn up. Those aren't going to deteriorate, but they will last through eternity. And, and where will they be in eternity? What are we doing? How do we treasure the souls of men? Your treasure shows where your heart is. Is it for the kingdom of God, or is it for the kingdom of this earth? Verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? There he's talking the healthy eye versus the unhealthy eye. And I think uh, we can simply understand that. 
um, as the eye, the healthy eye, is the eye or the heart, could we say, that is set on heavenly treasure, on heavenly things. And then in verse 24, he makes it very clear why to live simply. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve the kingdom of God. And we could say mammon. We could say wealth. Maybe we could just say ourselves. We cannot serve God and ourselves or the things that please us, the things that, that we like and enjoy or, uh, or that, that grab our attention from God, the ease. And just uh, Hosea 10, verse 2, talks about the heart being divided. It's impossible to have a divided heart. It will either be for God or for self and the pleasures of this life. And the remainder of the chapter. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Don't worry about tomorrow. He says, take a lesson from the birds. They take one day at a time. And that was mentioned here this morning about God feeding the birds. Yes, they do need to reach in and take that, that seed. But one day at a time, God feeds, God cares for the birds. The birds don't worry about it. They don't worry about tomorrow. They take what is there for them for the day. And you know, God cares so much more about you and me. And I, I don't think we need to worry about the future, about how we'll be cared for, because I think God will do that. He'll take care of us. Now he brings out here in verse 28 the, the picture of a lily 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And my mind just always goes to the simple daisy. Um, in, in Alaska, we had a, it was a, quite a sizable daisy. The yellow center had the, the uh, white um, petals on it. And um, I, I just always thought that there was a, just a simple beauty to them. Um, that they didn't need anything more. There was, I just really enjoyed seeing those flowers out in the fields, along the road or wherever. And uh, maybe a, a comparable one I think of um, that has a little more life in the color would be the, the black-eyed Susans that we have around here. Why is the flower beautiful? You can take any other flower. Why is the flower beautiful? Have they paid a lot of attention to, to making themselves beautiful? It says here that they don't toil or they don't, they don't work. They don't spin. I think that could probably be referring to spinning um, to make clothing. They're just out there doing what God designed them to do. They are clothed in a beauty that is given by God, and there's no effort there. And he, he brings in the comparison of Solomon. You know, Solomon was a, a wealthy man, and I think as we read the scriptures, we recognize that he did not necessarily live a simple life. He lived a, quite a lavish life, actually. But here he says, Jesus says that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed or was not clothed like one of these simple little flowers. One thing that the lily teaches us is that there is beauty in simplicity. Try as you might, I don't think you could make a lily more beautiful than it is. There is beauty in its own simplicity. 1 Timothy 6. We're going to turn there and read a number of verses there. First Timothy 6, we'll read 6 through 12. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses." Godliness 
with contentment. Do you put a value on contentment? Godliness with contentment. I trust that we do. We're called to flee that desire to be rich, to flee the love of money, to follow righteousness, and to fight the good fight of faith. We have too much work to do to be carried away with riches. In thinking of an example of a people that lived simply, my mind was drawn to Jeremiah 35, the account of the Rechabites. And I, I always enjoy this passage in, I think it stands out to me so much. I, I'm not sure that the years that we're looking, out, looking at here from when uh, Jonadab gave this commandment to his children for how they should live, but years later, they were living as their father, Jonadab had encouraged or maybe commanded them to live. And it seems like they were content in it. And just a testimony of a father who, who did something right. A father who passed on not only to the next generation, but to generations following, who passed on vision that he had for his family. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah here, and he told Jeremiah to go and set pots of wine before the Rechabites. So in verse 5, it says, And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine, and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed, and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land, that we said, Come, and let us go to Jerusalem, for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. We'll stop reading there. Jonadab commanded, No wine, 
no houses, no fields or vineyards. He wanted his family, his children, to live simply, free from attachments to this life. And I think he probably recognized what affluence could do to his family and to the oncoming generations. He probably recognized problems with the Jews that could stem from their being wealthy. There's, there's two things specifically here that I want to bring out uh, that I think we can learn from the Rechabites and from Jonadab. And one is that living extravagantly can bring discontent to us and to others. We have, and we want, and we see what other ha others have, and we tend to want some more. And uh, just an example here, um, also as I was um, thinking about this message um, earlier, uh, my um, family, we were um, parked in at l l Marketplace, I think it was. And uh, my wife had gone in for groceries. And so um, the children and I were sitting in the vehicle. And I noticed, man, you can probably understand, uh, just a really nice, sharp-looking truck that drove uh, by us through the parking lot there. And you know, I, I pointed it out to, to my boys. Um, I forget how the conversation all went. You know, it would be nice to have a, a truck like that one we saw there. It was, a, it was a fairly new truck. I don't know how new. But you know, I don't need a truck like that. I don't need a, I don't know, 40, 50, whatever thousand dollar truck um, like that was. It'd be nice to have, but I don't need it. I don't know, maybe the person who had it was well able to afford it and, and had a need for it. I, I'm not standing here saying one way or the other. But, so let's say I, I do become discontent and I do go and buy that nice truck, take out the loan and whatever, and, um, you know, I set a standard. And I may cause some discontent among my brothers. Loving extravagantly can bring discontent to us and to others. Maybe it's a new, nice new appliance that you'd like to have, or the next gadget. And you know, we certainly do have needs, but let's not be a stumbling block to one another by simply gratifying ourselves. Another thing we can learn from the Rechabites is that if we determine to live simply, we can't look around to gauge our simplicity. You know, the Rechabites stood out from culture. They were different. They lived close to the Israelites, maybe among them, and yet they didn't live like them. 
They lived in tents. They didn't have houses. They didn't have vineyards and fields. I don't know exactly what their life was like completely. But, you know, they could have looked at the Israelites and said, Oh, the Israelites? Come on, Dad. The Israelites, they live in houses. There's nothing wrong with living in houses. They have nice farms. Why, why can't we do that? But they didn't do that. They didn't determine from the Israelites how to live. There was a time when they did go to Jerusalem and lived at Jerusalem for uh, protection, I believe it was. Um, and I, I wasn't quite clear on that. Did they go back to tents then or not? But um, they, they did continue that simplicity of life. And, you know, I think we do have tendencies to look around at others. I think um, probably a couple areas. One would be the area of dress that we tend to look around. And we can be influenced by culture around us, whether we want to admit it or not. But can our clothing be modest, simple, and even as the lily, beautiful? in that simplicity and modesty. Distinctive and respectful. You know, I think of how um, that temptation to pull on clothing that displays a name brand. And who, who are we identifying with? A manufacturer? Or are we identifying with the kingdom of God? Fads come, fads go, and they can take us from simplicity so fast. Another area I think of that we can tend to look around at others is the area of recreation. And it might have to do with the trips we take or the recreational equipment we have. But if we look around at others, we tend towards dissatisfaction. We tend to want what others have. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Again there, God will care for us. Sometimes we may need to say no to the wants that we have. Sometimes I think it's good if we're willing to borrow instead of just go out and buy everything that we need to use. A question to ask ourselves, does it bring pleasure to God or is it just simply a satisfaction to myself? This morning we could, we could probably look all around the room here and look at everyone else and uh, pick out areas where, where we could all live more simply. And I, I don't want to encourage that this morning. That's not our call. 
but it's simply to assess our lives and assess our usefulness to God's kingdom and are there things that are getting in the way whether it's in possessions or just other areas of life and I think one thing that just in closing here um, just kind of maybe answers the questions here uh, the words of a song turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory in grace is that where we're at this morning our eyes turned fully on Jesus looking into his beautiful face and where we're not lured by the attractions that this world has to offer I just want to challenge each one of us above all else to keep our eyes turned upon Jesus Let's stand.